Welcome to Regulatory Ramblings. Our guest today is a dear personal friend of mine. Una Vandenberg is a lawyer by training, an entrepreneur by vocation, and she grew up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. She went on to become a lawyer, a compliance officer, recruiter, and later a consultant and educator. A married mother of two, Una is going to be sharing her thoughts with us today on what makes for a good compliance officer, a uh, recurring theme and uh, one that's germane to HKU, given our emerging budding compliance and regulation program. And we were talking about um, what the compliance profession can do to let in more talent, more diverse personalities, skill sets. Um, for me, there was a time when I could have seen myself going into compliance. But I, I have to say, I, I think some of these barriers are deliberately put up, and not just by HR. You, you, have, you have people who don't want people to get into compliance because that means more competition. That, that You look at the budgets, though, and oftentimes it's like the divergent, the, the, the difference in what junior, mid-tier, and high-ranking people were paid was huge. And the, the, the upshot of it was the bulk of the compliance budget would go to a relative handful of people at the top. And if crumbs were left over, hire someone junior. And people who were junior would be dissatisfied with what they were making. Hence, you see the job hopping you do in Hong Kong, Singapore, you know, mainland China, uh, it leads to recruiters saying to people, you don't have five years of experience. You have one year of experience multiplied by five. So horrible implications for the profession. But then you've got certain financial institutions saying that there is such a shortage of talent that we're having to set up our own training centers to train the talent. When you talk to compliance professionals, what you're hearing, though, is it isn't so much it isn't so much that there's a shortage of talent. There's a shortage of talent relative to what people are willing to pay. I, I, to be honest, I have a slightly different. I, I hear exactly what you're saying. You know, when I first started out in this industry, um, what I was paid barely covered my rent living in London. I think that was the first thing. That that was a very very difficult thing to start with. Um, I had the, and I say I say this myself because I know I had the ability and the capabilities to be mentored and nurtured to be to be very good at my job, but getting into compliance, as I mentioned earlier, was hard because you know recruiters weren't willing to take a chance on me because I didn't have experience in compliance. Whilst on paper it made perfect sense to me why I would have this job at all of the the academic and and ECB and and JP Morgan, but um. One of the things that we do really, really badly as an industry is compliance is not rocket science. And I'm just going to put that out there now. I'm just going to make it. Compliance is about logically looking at the risk exposure that we have. It is not about taking the regulation and taking boxes. It's the regulation is a the regulation for me is something that I fall back on to double check that I didn't miss anything. There's not the reg, regulation is created when things go wrong. Regulation is created 
unidentified risks. What we are trying, and, and that's great, but that's the known knowns. What we're trying to do is mitigate against the emerging risks, the risks that are going that are going to happen in front of us. That that's what we, we know we don't have crystal balls, but we need to understand how how risk typologies change and develop. How can you train somebody to do that? You need to empower people to be able to think outside the box. You need to empower people to understand the environment they're working in and how risks can diversify as a result of the ways in which products um, and services can be used. So when I hear organizations saying, oh, we, you know, there's a real lack of talent and we've developed compliance training programs, what are you training? You know, what are you training them on? There's no substitute for on-the-job training and compliance, no substitute. But what is your training program consisting of? If you're going to tell me it is a like an ACAMS multiple choice test where you're going to be able to rhyme off the countries that are members of Ergmont, I'm sorry. That's not, not at all going to tell me that you can do this job. What I want to be able to understand is if I give you some scenarios um, of potential risks I want to see how you're thinking about how we could manage those risks. And compliance, there's a few things we need to think about is part of my language, but shit will hit the fan. And you're going to have to jump in the deep end and really get to grips of that very quickly. You're going to be on the, the front line when something goes wrong. One, how do you work under pressure? Two, how do you think logically about problem statements when they arise? Three, how do you think of those problems in the holistic overview of the control framework? You know, how could we have identified this sooner? Is there a gap? Where was the gap? How did we not foresee this emerging risk before it became a, a top risk in our organization? So going back to your question on people coming into compliance, it's not about having an ACANS qualification. It's not about having an ICA qualification. It's about having people that have an open mindset that can actually think logically about problems and that can step in and start to solve them. So if we want to look firstly at the hiring for compliance, I think that we have the hiring completely wrong. I think we look for the wrong skill sets. Secondly, you have people that hire like. You have people, I've seen this in many organizations, you have managers that hire people that are like them. And as like, I said, yeah, like, like attracts like, right? I mean, correct. And I will not hire somebody like me because I want healthy challenge. I want people to come in and challenge me. I'm not right in everything. I want somebody to say, you know what? And I, I appreciate what you're saying, but I want that healthy challenge. And by the way, that's not always easy. And that's a very uncomfortable position to put yourself in at times because you're you're basically opening the door for somebody to constantly challenge you and you or an underling to tell you you're wrong which is a huge faux pas in asian societies to have that level societies okay i'm generalizing and painting in broad strokes but there's enough truth to what i'm saying that that makes it germane that makes it salient societies of value harmony aren't going to want that kind of built-in uh, conflict in a unit. Yeah, and that's, and that's also something important. You say the word conflict. There's a very thin line. I find this when I was younger, as a young female in, in, in the financial world. 
there were times where I would go into meetings and I, I want to talk very importantly about mentorship because mentorships are so critical. And when I moved to Singapore back in 2010, there was nothing. There was no mentorships programs across the industry. And I want to talk about how that negatively impacts the development of up and coming talent. But um, one of the things that I I had a challenge with is I'm um, maybe it's again up to my a part of my upbringing. I will, I'm very much say what you see. If I see a problem, I will call it out. If I think that something needs to change, I will call it out. If I see somebody that I feel is being treated unfairly, I will call it out. And someone like you in, the, in, in societies like Singapore, Hong Kong, would be regarded as someone who's rocking the boat. There are plenty of people who are of subpar ability and intelligence that I've encountered. And I'm, I'm trying not to be judgmental, but Understand, I didn't come to my positions overnight. And this was after years of watching these people and, and interacting with them. And, but they're yes people. They won't rock the boat. They will not escalate things. They, they've, they, they, have their cushy, they have their cushy living. They're not going to rock the boat. And, you know, I, I, I almost... Uh, I spoke to one university student and they were seriously contemplating doing their PhD dissertation on is there something about the Hong Kong Chinese culture that's antithetical to effective AML compliance? No, I, I to be honest, this I don't think it's a Singapore Hong Kong problem. I think it's a it's a global problem. It's you know, I had I experienced it in London. And I had the same experiences in London that I had in Singapore and Hong Kong. Well, what compliance be damned, business must business rules the way. Yeah, I, I think the one the the one thing that was very similar with all of them is you're always going to get people that feel threatened by other people speaking up and challenging them. So that that's universal. That's not country specific. That's universal. But the one difference between London and 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 Singapore, because that was the the jump that I initially made, was, <laughs> as you rightly said, I think, and and Singapore has made a number of steps to change this. When I first arrived in Singapore, they didn't have this holistic education system. It was very much about about academic success, and academic success was completely back on how well did you do in your exam? You know, what, num what, you know, how well did you score? And for me, that is not an indication of somebody's ability to think outside the box. That's short-term memory retention and the ability to manipulate data to give the answer that the examiner is looking for. So one of the things I found when I went to Singapore was people, we, I, I got some of the most amazing CVs from an academic perspective but when I challenged people on thinking outside the box, the question was, well, do I have a checklist for this? No, there's no checklist. You need to come up. No, no, that I don't feel comfortable doing that. I, I, but I was like, I need you to think. I need you to look at the challenge statement and think about how we're going to logically solve this, looking holistically at these various factors. And it was like, well, is there anything that I can look at to, to learn so that I can do this? And that was one of that, and, and Singapore recognized that's a, that's this as a, a problem. That, that, that's a fair point. That, that's that's someone saying, okay, in the absence right now, I lack the knowledge. What can I do to bring myself up to speed? What you're doing is what one of my securities regulation profs used to do. Okay, we'll cover all the stuff that's established, 
And a lot of the stuff is, by this point, is established in terms of what the 33 Act says in the U.S., the 34 Act, or the, you know, the Investment Advisors Act, or the Companies Act, investment company, all of that, okay? And then he'll come up towards the end of the class, towards the end of the semester, he'll talk about cutting-edge problems where the law is undecided, where it's unclear, okay? One, two, three percent of the situation. But that ends up being the essay question on the exam. And, and then you're like, okay, we didn't really cover this, or we barely covered this. Uh, but he's like, yeah, but I want you to take all that you've learned and creatively apply it to the solution of this problem. And then the whole, you know, well, you know, why, why is he asking us something that's a 1% or 2% you know, likelihood problem, uh, you know, because he, that, that's, that's often the case. He's not going to test on the general rule. He's probably going to test on the exceptions or one of the exceptions. Yeah, the exception. But I think the, the education, and by the way, Singapore took steps in around 20, to, 2012, 2013, to begin to change the education system to make it more holistic. Yeah. And, um, and, that, and that was a great, really positive step because they identified the that they was a big, Yeah, the baccalaureate was a big deal. And yeah. I think it's, it's a huge step in the right direction compared to the yeah. O-levels and GCSEs and A-levels that you and I took. Yeah. And, and, but, uh, you know, it's, I think that positive steps have been taken, but that was, so, so to your question earlier about salaries, yes, the, the low end of going into compliance, it's a low end salary, but, you know, you know, let's say the base salary is around 28,000 a year, let's say, let's say sterling 28,000 a year. But, you know, if, if you get to a senior position, you can be on, you know, 10 times that, you know, you, you can end up on 280,000 a year. Um, and there's a massive jump. And, and that's something that can happen within the space of 10, 15 years, depending on how well you progress and also depending on who's supporting you. And that goes back to my mentorship as well. Never, ever underestimate the value and the importance of mentoring. Mentoring for me is one of the most valuable tools in your toolbox. There are people who have gone before you that have learned the hard way. You don't need to learn the hard way in some respects. You can go to these people and they can help you to see yourself as well. They can help you to understand, you know, as I mentioned, when I was younger, my biggest weakness is my passion. And as a result of that, I always say it was, a, it was maybe a little bit sexist as well. I could sometimes be seen as being emotional. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I was a man, I yeah. may have been seen as being assertive. Um, and, you know, that was where I find it a little bit. There was a gender bias towards women who, when women are passionate, they can be seen to be emotional. But if men are passionate, they seem to be assertive. And there's also, unfortunately, emotion converge on aggression. It can be seen that you're aggressive. And that didn't help me in my early years and in, in my profession, you know, the, I was a bit, and I still am to this day, I'm a bit like Marmite. Either you love me or you hate me. There's there's kind of no in-between. And I am what I am. And I make no apologies for it. But the one thing that I wish I had had was a better mentor, mentor mentoring um, from a very early age in my career, because that could have helped me to curb, curb my enthusiasm a little bit and not have been maybe chose the fights that I wanted to have a little bit better. Um, because I'm, as I said earlier, I always want to, if I see a problem, I want to fix it. 
but I don't need to fix every single problem. That's not my, that, that nobody should have that as, as their responsibility. And I just was, I just was constantly jumping in to help colleagues, to help managers, to help them. And sometimes because, and this is, this happens a lot in the industry as well. I sometimes would be placed by managers in situations where they wanted to push through some type of change, but they didn't want to be the person at the forefront of it because it, you have to tread lightly because you know, some people don't have made the decisions on how policy procedures should be established and now we need to change. So sometimes you would be thrown into the bear pit or the lion's den to kind of start that whole discussion and you would get eaten by the lion, but then they would come in afterwards and slowly people actually, you know what, we need to make a change. We need to. And so sometimes you would be used as, I wouldn't say a martyr, but sometimes you would be used as a pawn in a game or for somebody game. else's. Yeah, and and this happens across all industries. It's well, not let, just in. Let's, let's be no, but let, let, let's talk in tangible terms. What I've often seen play out is the local staff, and either in Hong Kong or Singapore, I'm more familiar with Hong Kong. They want to raise something for whatever their reasons. They don't they don't want to raise it, but they're like, okay, fine, get, go to the Guaylo, go to the expat, go to the Western expat, and if they say it, then it'll be taken more seriously. Uh, again. I get people don't want to mess up their livelihoods. And the perception is the Westerner has more courage. The Westerner will be taken more seriously. Um, let them raise it. Uh, doesn't, doesn't instill much confidence then in the local, in the state of the local profession. But, but I, I've seen that, and I've seen that in law firms as well, by, by the way. So yeah, that, that, that's... Nice. A, that seems to come up a lot, but pick up on the angle. I'd have to say, AJ, if, if I just on that note, I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly, you know, but I've been in Asia for 12 years before moving recently to Portugal. Yeah. And in that regard, I have seen what you've said, but I've also seen very good examples of where it's done right. And when I first moved to Singapore, I was, it was a horrendous experience for me going into it. It was a very, it, it was a very local compliance team. It was actually a very female, female dominated team as well, which was interesting. I'd, I'd never seen that. I've, I've actually yet to see that dynamic again in APAC. Um, of a female dominated uh, team. Yeah, female dominated yeah. team, very, very local, local team. And, you know, just as a good, a good example, um, I, you know, I, I moved out to Singapore and I was pregnant at the time and I was a, I was a single mum, and every other day I would get a question about, well, you know, well, where's the baby's father? And, and, and I know this is not related to compliance, but there was this, this is back in 2010 and there, there seemed to be a total lack of what, one of the things I find is no question is, is off the table. Questions will be asked, even the most personal questions. But secondly, I was a, you know, I was an, an expat single mum, and that was a very different demographic than they had than, than the team had been used to. And I would get asked really, really personal questions in the office about, and that was a big difference from London. You know, we have there are barriers to what you ask and what's appropriate to ask in the office. And I was being asked questions about my personal life, which I find to be just inappropriate. 
Um, and again, maybe maybe this is something we want to edit out of this afterwards, but it was a very difficult position because there was there was I moving to a brand new country on my own, pregnant. And that was hard enough. But to be in an office where I was constantly under the microscope, in my, in my opinion, and being asked personal questions about my life choices, it was totally inappropriate, totally inappropriate. Um, and and that impacted that impacted me. It impacted my confidence. Um, and it also made me feel very, very uncomfortable. Um, and again, this wasn't related specifically to compliance, but there was also ways in which the compliance team was was being run that I was a little bit surprised about because compared to what I had seen in London and the way that we did compliance, you know, we our job was not just to read the regulations, but our job was to go in and advise the business based on the products, how the regulations should apply. The attitude, and I, I'll say this because I stand over it, and it, it has changed now. I want everyone to know that it has changed now. But what I find... But only because rules had to be put into place to change it. Yeah, but, but what happened was compliance had become a postbox for the regu regulatory change. It was like the business would come and say, they say, oh, there's been a regulatory change. And they said, well, compliance would then send the regulatory change to the business. The business would tell compliance what that change should look like. Yeah. And uh, then compliance would make the changes. Now, I'm not saying that's that's a bad idea because it's not. That's compliance isn't owned by compliance. Compliance should be owned by the first line. So in fact, in one way, this was great. But on the other hand, it was like, well, what's the value of compliance here? Because you're just a post box. You're literally just receiving the regulatory change, telling the business, the business is telling you what you should do. Where is your understanding of the products, of the business, of the services? And we were trained in, in you know, in Europe and the US, we're trained to understand products and the businesses and services. And suddenly I was stepping into an environment where it was very different from a personal level, but also very different from a professional level and how we did compliance. Now, you know, as I said, a lot of things have changed since then. Um, but it was a it wasn't moving from from London to Singapore initially was not the best experience for me. Um, but I have to say, I'm incredibly grateful that I did it now because going back to my earlier comment, every challenge that you face is a way to develop and to improve and to grow. And I learned a hell of a lot about myself. And if I would go back, there are a lot of things I would change about how, you know, what I, how I maybe kind of managed myself. Um, I was very outspoken. Um, when I saw things weren't be do done right, I would raise them immediately it took me quite a while to adapt to the cultural changes. Um, and if I had had somebody mentoring me and better helping me with that cultural adjustment, I probably would have been more successful hitting the ground running. Um, but that's, you know, that's why I'm very passionate now about developing mentor programs because I want people, I don't want people to ever be in the same situation. There's no need for people to be in the same situation that I was in because I've learned and other people should be able to, to coach and develop other people. And there, there is experience in the industry that people can leverage off. Having a mentor is so important, but yeah. so few people are blessed and situated in, in the right circumstances. And uh, based on your experience in Singapore, yeah, I mean, experienced is the cruelest of teachers, they say, and that you get the exam and then the lesson, not not the other way around. Uh, 
I'll pick up on that. I mean, okay, your experience in Singapore was a bit of an anomaly in terms of being in an all-female compliance team. Uh, but we're talking about an industry profession that still, for the longest time, has been heavily male-dominated, the law and compliance. You're seeing changes around the world. Many of the world's top law schools are getting more female candidates and they're having to do affirmative action in favor of the men to have something approaching a 50-50 balance because the bigger issue is, do you want a society of white-collar women and blue-collar men? That, 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 that can be disruptive in its own right in, in, in terms of social cohesion and balance. So what, what are your thoughts on you know, being a woman in, in such a profession and you know, what, what, what's the progress that you've seen over the course yeah. of your working life? Um, I think that a really good example of what I'm about to say comes from an interview I did once. Um, I was interviewed by, by a very, very well-known, very well-established uh, bank, um, one, of the, one of the biggest banks globally. And I was in an interview with one of the most senior people. And they asked me a question. The gentleman asked me a question on, what are your views on women in executive leadership? And I said, excuse me, he says, what is your view on woman and executive leadership? And my view has always been the same. For me, it is not about gender, race, religion, anything. It should be the right person for the right job. It's, I don't see myself as a woman when I'm in the office. I don't see myself as a, as a, a Caucasian white woman. I see, my, I see myself as somebody that's doing the job. So I've never walked into an office and worried about being a woman and how that would impact my ability to do my job and I don't look at I don't look at my colleagues and say oh there's a man and there's a woman or you know there's a black person or there's an Asian person I, I don't I honestly don't see that and I'm not trying to say this to sound you know to sound very kind of you know woke I'm being honest I've never had that gender issue and I said I, I responded um in that way to the gentleman and I said in all honesty I'm a massive believer that it should be the right person for the right job. And his response to me was, word for word, I disagree. You need a woman in the room to balance things. What the hell does that mean? Like, what, what does that mean? It was the most sexist comment I've ever heard. I was like, what do you mean? I, no, I, I know it's to this day, I still am dumbfounded that somebody at such a senior level would even open their mouth and utter these words because this person for sure had gone through diversity training. Yeah, but, yeah. To, but to put it blatantly to this day, I still think that gentleman is a dick. And, and I'm just going to say that black and white. Because um, he, he had his agenda. He had his work, agenda. Working with that gentleman, I also saw him for what he was. And I should, I'm, God, I can't believe I'm being so honest about this, but it was just really to this day, it shocked me. But then working with the gentleman, it didn't shock me anymore because that's just it, it was all it, it was all very, very, very fake. And, and that was my question is, are we really giving, you know, we do all this diversity training and we want to say the right things, but are we actually giving the proper voice to diversity and to inclusion or are we trying to pretend that we're doing it through promotional campaigns and saying the right thing? And that's that's a whole other discussion. But in compliance, I um, I've seen some very strong kind of 
female female teams like Citibank is a great example and there in Hong Kong you had Avalyn uh, Avalyn San who's now CEO of City for Hong Kong she previously was APAC head of compliance she was the chief compliance officer ex-UBS an amazing woman and I'm not just saying this I as a friend I'm saying that she's an amazing woman as a professional she's an amazing woman um and you know I've also seen the, the challenges that she has faced you know going into organizations, et cetera. She's an amazing woman. Um, but also as well, I've, as going back to your point earlier, I've also seen some male um, individuals in the industry and, and female who have been the worst of the worst. Um, I um, actually once had a female, a female boss uh, who threatened to punch me in the office because I didn't close a word document. <laughs> Like I'm not joking, and um, that that was pretty that was pretty significant. And um, at the time, I actually launched. A, I, I actually made a complaint to HR about it, and the response from HR was, "Well, look, it's your word against hers, um, and we know that this individual is is quite a strong individual, so we're just going to have to say it is what it is." And I'm like, "Okay, so yeah, that would never slide in New York or London." I mean, no, no, it was just like. But it was just such a bizarre and then it kind of made you think, well, what's what, you know, if I'm working 12, 16 hours a day in my job and somebody then threatens me physically in the office, what protections are being afforded to me in the workplace? So, you know, this is another thing is really, really important is doing your job and your ability to do, do your job is 10 percent. And that's that's a, that's one thing I remember. um when I was at ING, there was this amazing, she's actually now the global head of compliance at Santander, Marilyn Van Helimont, an amazing woman. And she always said, when I hire people, it's 10% their ability to do their job, 90% their ability to be part of the team. And that that ratio should always be the case because you're you're already being interviewed because you have the capability to do the job. But whether or not you can integrate with the team, that's what's going to define retention. It's going to define the success of the team. Um, and, um, and, you know, that was something that was really, it's been really, really important to me through my career, but yeah, be, being physically threatened by a senior, a, somebody that was senior to me, um, in the office, my manager, actually, in fact, that was really frightening. I was a very, and then knowing that there was limited protections or support from HR at work, that's also quite frightening as well. Um, and these are things that we as an industry need to change as well. So when you, when you hear people you know, I work 16, you know, 12, 16 hours a day. That is not a badge of honor. That is abuse. If you're working that length of time in the office every day, there is something seriously and fundamentally wrong. And the other thing you need to think about as well is, God forbid you're hit by a bus in the morning, you are replaceable. You will be replaceable. Your organization is bigger than one person. You know, the organization is not going to fail or collapse as a result of you not being there. Yes, it's probably going to cause a few headaches in the first initial weeks, but the organization is still going to continue. You know, you're just a number. So I think we need to really re-examine work-life balances. Um, We need to re-examine how people invest their time and energy into their work. One of the things positively but maybe we've gone over the we've gone to the other end of the spectrum. More more millenniums, millennials. I always I never say this word well. Millennial, one of the things, generation. Yeah, one of the things I have found more in hiring in recent years, and I'm talking about the last the last kind of five six years, 
work-life balance is so important to people and people will be very clear. These are my boundaries. I'm coming to work for these hours, but after this time, I am not available. I do not work weekends. And I have to say, I respect that. I never, you, you, I'm sure like AJ, we didn't have that. We come from the, the, the age of like the nineties, the two thousands where, yeah, yeah, where we work, 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 work and working and working all hours is a real, that's what you do. We have an and interesting then you, cohort, an interesting cohort because we're in between the sixties generation and, and these people and yeah, I mean, the for us, it was made clear. Greatness, you want to be in the top of your field, greatness is not attainable on 40 or 50 hours a week. No, it's not. But, um, but, but I, I respect the new, the, the new generation coming through for the boundaries they have. Yeah. Um, but, but I also as well, I have to say, if I take a step back, I'm so passionate about my work that there are times where I'll end up just where I will work 16 to 18 hours a day just because I love, love what I do. I love compliance. And I, you may not hear many people speaking about it in such a way. The work that we do is fascinating. It's every day it's different. Every day it changes. You know, when you end up in a job that's quite monotonous within compliance, take a step back and realize that something's fundamentally broken. Compliance should never be monotonous. Every scenario, every issue, every risk is different. It may have similarities with something that's gone before it, but these are such, compliance is so diverse. It's so exciting. And I've had the privilege of working in very big compliance teams, but also standalone compliance teams where I've had to build the framework from ground up. So, you know, I've, I've been in there, I've rolled up my sleeves, I've done everything, I've done all of the dirty work, but I've also then sat in a very senior position where I've overseen it. And sometimes that's difficult for me because I like to jump in and do the dirty work. I love to jump in and roll up my sleeves and just constantly evolve and learn as change, as risks change. But, um, but yeah, compliance is never dull, never, ever boring. And if anybody says to me, oh, you know, there, there was actually a really a really interesting article, not, not to get into the whole FTX discussion, because I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now. Um, their COO, um, a lady called Constance Wang, yeah. um, she had two years experience working in compliance, I think at Credit Suisse. And she was on record quoted having said, the reason why she left compliance as, a, as an analyst after two years was because compliance training was boring. Now, I have to say compliance training can be incredibly boring. If it's done wrong, it's the worst thing ever in an organization. Because it's so, it's, so, it's so rule-laden that it, it can be numbing. It absolutely, and it can be absolutely. I, I've seen compliance done good. I've seen it done badly, and it can be horrendous. Um, but putting aside the fact that they had a COO that had like maybe three years experience with financial institutions, that's a whole other discussion that's an FTX discussion but but her point on training was spot on and and it goes back to what I said if you're in compliance and you find the job boring there's something fundamentally broken that within the compliance department because our job should never be boring it, and yes there are some processes which can be monotonous those are the processes you need to you need to automate 
You know, if something is, 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 is monotonous, a human shouldn't be doing it. A computer or a system can do it. So um, again, this goes towards the evolution of compliance. We should be automating manual. We should be automating the monotonous processes because clearly a human is bored by it, and we should be putting people with various skill sets in in front of understanding and identifying real risk. And I, that's where I think that the not that I think that I know compliance is changing. We're moving much more from. But it will it will continue technical technically where people need to have technical capabilities. But data analytics is key. We are going to see many more people with data analytics capabilities in this space and also kind of tech capabilities. So automation is key. Data analytics is key. Um, and also going back to what I said at the very beginning, understanding of products and services will continue to be key. That you're not that is the 101 of getting the job right. But we're still getting the whole training and education. Like I've said this on record before, and I'll say it again. ACAMS is an example. ACAMS does not equip you to do your job. It does. It basically says okay. that you have but you have short term memory retention in a multiple choice test, and you've been able to go in there and rhyme off ergmont or regulations or the date that an act and a regulatory act was introduced. That's great. But I can tell you well, that that is not going to yeah. look. It's as, it's as, not going to help you in your job. And the same the same with various qualifications I'm seeing in the market. They don't equip people to hit the ground running. They don't equip people to do their job. But in a, in a, in a, in a market, okay, we we've talked about credentialism in the past. Okay, we arguments can be made on either side. Do enough people exist with the requisite experience? And and frankly. I would say it's in, if if these institutions are serious, it's incumbent upon them to train people in their own compliance programs, and then they take that knowledge, the basic fundamental principles, the first principles, and apply it to other jobs over the course of their career. Okay, but in a in a market where, assuming there is a shortage of talent, as we've discussed, people are making. People are treating credentials as a proxy for experience. The more letters you... Asians are guilty of this uh, more than others, but it's an issue in the West as well. In a market where you have more letters after your last name, I will tell you, I, I know Wei Dong, and I'm sure you do too, and, I mean, and, and, and that they do good work. The ACAM... And I've seen people with minimal experience... The ACAMS credential will at least get them the interview. They'll at least get yeah, the callback because it's seen as a minimum standard. It's a, it's a yeah, but but AJ, listen. The, the the biggest problem I have is that's well and good. If you financially are in a position to be able to afford ACAMS, I have come across people, and you know this applies to ACAMS, ICA, other qualifications. I have come across people that the call of those exams cost more than what their family makes in a month. Yeah. We, by default, have created barriers to entry in our industry because we've created financial limitations. And that is wrong for everything that we stand for. That is fundamentally wrong. And that's why, without blowing my own trumpet, that is why, you know, in addition to working full time, we set up Raw Compliance, which is a social enterprise to train people for free because I saw that people we're not being able to get jobs because they couldn't afford qualifications. We 
actually created exclusion in our own industry by allowing these, you know, ACAMS is a, it's a $200 million organization. It's a, it's not a non-for-profit. It, when it started, it started with a very, very good intention. It was set up by people from ex-IRS, CIA, et cetera, who wanted, who saw that the financial system was being used as the conduit. But now it's, now it's, now it's a cash cut. Now it's a cash cut. And the same, can, no, same can be said for no, ACFS and ICA and, and any number of them. It's all, it's all, it's all money, money, money. It's not about, it's not about these qualifications. And I'm not saying that we're, we should be running organizations, you know, constantly for the good of our own health. But what I'm saying is that these qualifications create barriers to entry. So yes, there are people who are able to get jobs because it's a prerequisite and it shows a minimum level of level attained. But there are people who can't get a job because it's created a barrier to entry. And I have a serious problem with that. The other thing I would say as well is, yeah, and I, the other thing I would say on your point about a lack of, a lack of talent, I disagree. I I actually fundamentally disagree. So then it's, it's, what is it then? If it's not a lack of talent, what will do? Two things. One, organizations have not looked pragmatically and practically at how to automate various processes so there's a lack of automation which means they just throw bodies at it and i have seen this over and over again they threw hundreds of bodies at kyc remediation transaction monitoring remediation or just bau kyc or transaction monitoring you know Throwing bodies at it is not the solution. You, automating is the solution. So firstly, it's about effectiveness. Are, this, are, are the frameworks set up in an effective way? No. Secondly, technical capabilities. As I said earlier, we are at times looking in the wrong places for expertise. We are at times looking at the wrong academic and, and, and not even just academic. I, I don't need somebody to have gone to university to be able to do a job in compliance. I need somebody that just can think. I need somebody that can think outside the box. And sometimes the most streetwise people and street smart people are what you need. You know, if I'm trying to get my head inside that of a fraudster, I'm not looking for somebody that's been, and and this is extreme, I'm not looking for, you know, an, an Oxbridge educated person. I'm maybe looking for somebody that's been raised on the streets that understands how, financial crime and fraud works, understands the typologies that are employed um, in order to create to create the, the, the capabilities for, for money to be laundered. So this is where we, isn't it? So is there a shortage of talent? No, there's not. Are we looking for talent in the wrong places? Yes, we are. Are organizations throwing bodies at problems that automation could solve? Yes. Why? because they're just not thinking properly about future-proofing the department. Now, on the back of that, the question is, you know, we see repeated enforcement action for the same issues across the industry. Why is that? As Einstein said, to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result is insanity. We are insane as an industry. We constantly do the same thing. We have the same controls. Policies don't change. Systems don't change. We re-engineer what we already know to create the solution. And the honest truth is we need to be looking fundamentally at what is broken, holistically what is broken. And when I have stepped into the fintech crypto space, uh, there was one moment 
probably around two and a half years ago. I was sitting at my desk in Hong Kong. I was, I was sitting in the office and I was sitting, actually working from home. And I suddenly, AJ, had this, had this moment of clarity where I sat back and I literally, and to be perfectly honest, I just went, shit, we've been doing this wrong. How have we got this so wrong as an industry? And the truth is, we're constant, and this goes back to my point earlier, we start with the regulation. So we talk about risk-based compliance models. It's, it's rubbish. Who does risk-based compliance? Nobody is. They start with the regulation. They map the regulation to the policy, the policy, they create the procedures, then they implement op operational controls. At which point did anybody look at the risk? At which point did anybody articulate the risk in the platform? At which point did anybody look holistically at the risk controls and say, hey, wait a second, KYC is a great example. We get the same documentation for credit risk as we do for, for KYC. We also, as we move towards ESG, we also get the same documentation. Think about the UX, the customer experience, the user experience. First and foremost, we're asking our client three times the same documents. Secondly, in the organization, we have the documents in three different places, but nobody speaks to each other. So the bottom line is we are fundamentally broken as an industry in how we collate data, how we use data, how we identify risks in our books, how we articulate the risks in our books. And until that moment changes, this is where fintechs and crypto firms are going to blow traditional banking out of the water because what they have done is they have found cost-effective ways to holistically pull all of this together, create automated controls. In some instances, I'm seeing around 70% automation within compliance. So the compliance officers, the teams are minimal, and then they have people that are have the ability to focus on risk and to understand risk. This is where we, as an industry, if traditional banking wants to survive, this is what they need to do to change. So going to your point earlier, is there a shortage of talent? No, there's not. Are we looking in the wrong places? Yes. Are compliance frameworks effective, cost-effective? Are they running efficiently? No. Do they identify risk? Not very well. Um, and a great example of that is transaction monitoring systems. On average, systems identify 2% of risk in your book. 8% if you bring the other six, that six percent that you find issues when you're looking through an alert, which is unrelated to the actual alert. So let's just say you're you're spending between 200 to a million. Actually, I know some firms that spend three million US dollars a year on these systems, and they 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 identify eight percent of risk in your book. Tell me, can somebody just tell me how that makes sense? Like how how you know if you've got a system that's eight percent accurate. And you're spending up to three million a year. Mind blowing. Yeah, I mean, several things pop in my head. I mean, we talk, we hear about AI and machine learning being used in compliance. So then, the conventional wisdom is that's going to lead to more redundancies because pretty soon, let's take financial crime compliance. They say, you know, Robin Lee mutual friend of ours, is of the view that uh, pretty soon substantive knowledge of money laundering won't matter. That if it's about identifying patterns and data, you might as well have your FCC 
and sanctions teams headed by data scientists. Mm -hmm. And you'll need some substantive experts, but not as many as you once did. And that result will be you'll see many junior and mid-tier level money laundering reporting officers lose their jobs. I wouldn't say lose their job. I think a lot of people are employed right now. Their jobs Will they be redeployed? or Because the, the other side of it is, the cardinal question of the 21st century is, how well does your labor work with, complement, and enhance the productivity of technology? And if the answer is yes, you've got a future. If no, you have an uncertain future. I, I, look, the, the truth is, I agree with Robin's viewpoint. Um, I agree with him that the face, the, the, the face um, of a compliance officer will change going forward. Yes, totally agree. It will become more focused on data analytics. I totally agree that we will still need to have experts who can actually look at key risks in, in the book. Um, we're seeing a lot more compliance officers. The traditional compliance officers' background was legal and accountancy. We're beginning to see many more compliance officers now coming from the private or sorry, the public side. So, you know, ex, you know, enforcement, police officers, Europol. We're beginning to see people moving over, not just for the salaries. <laughs> That's a very, a very important point. But also, you know, a great example is like, look at Paul Jeftovich, um, who, who we both know. An incredible man, incredible man, um, who was he? He led the enforcement in Australia against. Um, I, I always mix up the two. It was Commonwealth Bank, yeah, CBA. Um, you know, incredible guy. He was head of the kind of the transaction monitoring unit uh, for Australia, um, and then he was heading up for HSBC. He's now the head of the head of financial crime compliance uh, for. Um, I'm going to say NAB, I think, National Australia Bank. Incredible, incredible man. He came, he was a 30-year seasoned police officer who had investigated different types of crimes throughout his career, brought that experience over into the private side and employed that, and then brought people, blended the teams together with both um, you know, technical product experience and also on-the-ground investigative capabilities. So we need investigators. We need data scientists um, and we need people who still have the knowledge of products and services. That's the blend that we need within organizations going forward. And um, I've seen HSBC employing that very successfully. Um, I've also said Citibank have also been employing that. So that the way in which compliance is, the teams are made up will change. Yes, we're going to see a reduction in staffing because, odd, you know, well, I, always, I always argue a system will only do what you tell it to do. So you're going to still need people on the other side of it. However, with the implementation of AI and artificial intelligence, of course, systems are going to be able to start thinking, but we're going to have to make sure that the information they're being given to think is correct. So you're constantly going to have to go back to, right, what information are we inputting into the system to allow the system to make decisions? And then we we also then need to go back to double check that because that, one wrong decision making element will infect the whole logistics of the AI system. So these are things that are going to take years to iron out. So will we see a reduction in workforce? Yes. Is that positive? Absolutely. Organizations need to decrease overheads and costs and compliance. Cost of compliance is astronomical. And as I said earlier, Compliance isn't rocket scientists, but we've over-engineered processes within an inch of their life to the point that the customer experience is damaged. Onboarding customers can take 
I, I saw a stat there last week. Um, Fenergo actually did a report and there are some organizations, I think it was something around 5% that take up to 210 days to onboard a new corporate client. 210 days. That's insane. Whereas in Singapore, you can onboard a retail. Well, there's a big difference between retail and corporates, but you can onboard a retail client, for example, DBS, two minutes, two minutes it takes because they link in to, 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 the, various, to the various government portals. Um, so they get the information automatically. So this is where we need to think smart. Singapore is doing tremendous work, not just in the kind of customer onboarding, but also trade finance, the usage of blockchain technology to basically, you know, trade finance is a great example. We still are working in manual with manual paper, with, with physical documents. Uh, in, in the year 2022, it's, it's shocking. So Singapore has made phenomenal steps in using blockchain technology for, for basically capturing documentation. The problem you have in trade finance, however, in particular, is approximately, I'm going to say 90%, approximately 90% of financing and trade finance is done outside of the financial sector. So, you know, we, we have very, very limited in we very limited capabilities to really push through usage of blockchain technology unless governments require it to be used. Um, so it it still is very very um, it it's it still is going to be an area that's very vulnerable to financial crime just because of the nature and way the work is done and also because it sits outside of the financial system per se because of funding. But um, but yeah, yes, I agree. We will see a reduction. We will, we will be working smarter. We will see much more automation and the face and the capabilities and the, the technical capabilities of compliance officers will change fundamentally. And it's already started. It's already started. What you're saying about compliance not being rocket science. I mean, what's true about automation impacting compliance, I think is true for the legal profession writ large. We've had Ron you on this show to talk about it early um, early on in in our history and I, I I would put it like this that I mean of the three traditional professions law medicine accounting the law has a certain mystique to it but it's not rocket science there's just too much of it in, t in terms of in order to be able to use or operationalize any one rule you need to be able to use several rules in tandem or have knowledge of them. So the whatever it is, I mean, the typical US law school, 300, 400, 500 rules of law that you learn over the course of three years, uh, I'm guessing that's more or less standard throughout much of the common law world, give or take. But um, it's not rocket science, but but it ha the law has a certain mystique to it. and. Again, not everyone is cut out to be, not everyone has the aptitude for numbers to be an accountant. Not everyone, not everyone has the acumen to be a doctor. Not everyone has that capacity. But traditionally, the view was that a person of average intelligence could get them into a, themselves into a halfway decent law school. They stood a pretty good chance of an upper middle class lifestyle, or, or even you know being being a lower single digit or double digit millionaire, uh, 
the gap between that myth and the reality for the longest time was not that great because there were enough examples of success. People bought into it. Post-2001, people started to see there were too, way too many lawyers out of work. Sarbanes-Oxley comes along, you see a lot of them go into compliance. I mean, compli and then we come to compliance, I mean, and, and what's traditionally been regarded as a dumping ground for burnt-out lawyers and accountants, and ex-military law enforcement and intelligence types. Again, what I'm saying was more true a decade ago, less so now. But there still seems to be enough truth to it, and and as far as the types that are trying to escape the billable hour at a law or accounting firm, they're trading one set of you know demons for another. The guys who were ex-military former cops, I mean, it's it's a juicy plum retirement job, and and the, but the critique I hear from a lot of them is, lawyers do not make the best compliance officers. Because these are law enforcement and military intelligence types, because they don't know how to interview people, especially when it comes to launching investigations, which is part of the remit of compliance. Yeah. So, what are your thoughts? Do do lawyers necessarily make the yeah, best compliance officers? I, or not? I'm a massive believer that um, that that law is a fantastic base point. Um, I think is so. I'm, I'm sure my own bias is when I say that. I, I won't deny that. Um, I think that law. One of the things I I, I still go back to. Yes, I I did my academic training and then I tra I did my academics and I trained as a lawyer initially. Um, and one of the reasons why I didn't end up exploring a, a full legal career was that I think that tr that legal legal training sets you up for so many opportunities in life like it really it's such having a law degree it's such a great tool it's so diverse it's it, it there's so much that you can do with a law degree um and it's so versatile think so, so i think yeah uh, i do I because I you have i think my options would have been better had i studied business because i mean and as far as the universe being your oyster it seems to be more the case that if you graduate, say, in the U.S., from a top 14 law school, yeah, yeah, then you can go into investment banking or consulting or whatever you want. But No, I, I find with a law degree, what skill sets does it give you? It equips you with analytical mindset. Um, it equips you with a lot, you know, it's very much around public speaking and debating, which is incredibly important. Again, and I talked earlier about, about diversification of skill sets within teams, you know, so I think having a law degree, you're, you'll be very analytical. Um, you you know, you're always reading, you're reading between the lines. You're always trying to second guess. Yeah, in terms of, yeah. yeah. The, so the so it's, it's so valuable to have. But I will also say, you know, I, um, and I think that a few people I've worked with will test to this. I am terrible at math, like terrible, terrible, terrible at math. And, um, and this is something as well. So, you know, I, I'm I can look at data and I can analyze data, but you know I, there are things that math people who have mathematical capabilities can do that I cannot do, and um, and that is where I said earlier it's so important that we have the diversification skill set. So do I still think that having a law degree is a good base point to getting into compliance? I do because of the skill sets it gives you, but 
you, it will only work if you can blend those skill sets with other skill sets from people who have different backgrounds and different trainings and different knowledge sets. And that's where that's where teams really come together and, and work well. And when you have that right blend, and as I said earlier, that healthy challenge within the team with different mindsets and knowledge and capabilities, that's what that's the key to success. And that's not just for compliance. That's the key to success of any team and any organization. And that is that is what differentiates the top 1% of companies in the world of top performing companies. They have, they have psychological security, i.e. people know they can raise issues without fear of reprisal, but they also have healthy challenge. And when you blend psychological security and healthy challenge together, you are going to absolutely explode as an organization in terms of your, in terms of your success. I would, yeah. I mean, it should be viewed as a holistic, multidisciplinary endeavor. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you find an institution or organization like that, hold on for dear life because good things are rare. They're often okay. fleeting. And, and to your point earlier about people job hopping, you know that again, to, exactly to to that point that you've made. If you're in an organization where you're happy in your job and you're learning and you're growing and you're developing, but you don't feel that you're going up the ladder as quickly as you would like, or you don't feel that your salary is as high as you would like it. Don't, don't look at short-term gain versus, you know, sorry, my dogs are beside me. If you hear the noise, it's my dog. Um, it don't look at, um, my, my, my dog has a congenital heart defect. So he kind of always does this coughing thing and it sounds disgusting, but I don't notice it. But um, anyway, don't look at short-term gains versus your long-term opportunity. And I, I've people generally have become quite short-sighted. Uh, and please don't look at my CV as an example of this. Um, I have changed jobs a lot in my career. And one of the fundamental reasons for that is I am so eager to learn and I want to grow and I want to develop. And it has never, ever been about the bottom line. It's never been about the salary. I have That is the one thing that's never driven me. Rather, it is I wanted to absorb every bit of experience and knowledge. And I've, I'm so happy to say that, you know, in I've been doing this now 22 years. I'm really happy where I am now. There are, as I mentioned earlier, what do I wish I had had more? I wish I'd had better mentoring. I wish I had better had the ability to look at my weaknesses and, and own my weaknesses at an early age. One of the things that we we do very well as an industry or as industry as, as, as human beings is we focus on our strengths, but we need to embrace our weaknesses. And that only happens with maturity. Um, unfortunately, as, at a young age, we feel that our weaknesses are something that can be used against us in a, in a negative way. I disagree. Find out what your weaknesses are and work with people whose strengths are your weaknesses. And that will make you that will make you stronger as a, as a collective, but will also make you stronger as an individual because you're being challenged. Um, so I wish I had had more of that in my career. And, you know, if I could go back and do anything differently, the big thing I would have made sure is I always had a mentor and I really started to understand my strengths and weaknesses more at an earlier age because harnessing those is going to be your key to success. But Jeff, your, your question was, the initial question was about having a law degree. I do think a law degree still is a very good base point to get into many professions, including compliance, but it's, you know, you need to be able to blend that with other skill sets um, around you in order for that to really work. 
Okay. Now, come back to your earlier point about you know how oftentimes people will regard your ability to do the job as ten percent of what they're looking for, and remaining ninety percent uh, is how well you work with the team. It seems to me then implicit in that is how well you manage internal politics and how well you can form and manage relationships with with with, with people. I mean, we, we we go back to the notion that. No one is, no one is, um, what's, what's, no one's indispensable, but some people are hard to replace. I mean, if we go back to uh, my favorite comedian, Chris Rock, that uh, you're only necessary so long as you're useful. And that, that seems to be the adage many institutions abide by. Uh, so if, if we keep that in mind, uh, I mean, does it does it make sense to merge legal and compliance or no? Com compliance, it's a, it's a very very so initially back in back in, so I think the kind of the first organizations to really have compliance were the likes of Goldman's. I think you had Benedict Nolan's on your podcast as well. Mm -hmm. um, ben Benedict was actually originally in compliance. She's a lawyer. Um, moved into compliance in like the late nineteen nineties um, with Goldman's. So, you know, this is a perfect example of where, comp so compliance initially sat under, either sat within accounting or it's sat within, or it's sat within legal. And then after, we began to see during two, the 2000s, a, a move of compliance stepping out from the shadow of legal and our accounting. And I say the shadow, it was kind of under an understanding that with the increase in regulation, compliance was taking its own it was becoming its own department within its own right, rightly or wrongly. I, I think the biggest negative that we've had is that we called a department compliance because going back to my point earlier, compliance is every individual's responsibility. It's not the responsibility of a department. The fact that we've named a department compliance psychologically skews with that idea. But anyway, that's a whole other academic. Well, it, it, it compartmentalizes an organization wide responsibility. It does, and it removes the ownership of of risk from the first first line, and that's a, and and senior management because it's like, well, what what does compliance say? Well, actually, not about what compliance says. You need to think about what the risk is. You know, you're the one on the front line. So compliance did it kind of became a standalone department, and then we began to see around kind of 2010, 2011. The financial crime compliance team and the regulatory compliance team segregating and separate separating away from each other, and they are they are very different in the ways in which they operate. I, I, to be honest, regulatory compliance you're looking at conflicts of interest, market abuse, um, fraud. Uh, then you have and fraud sometimes can sit actually under legal as well in some some banks uh, depending on the financial institution, um, and then you have your your financial crime team your AML kind of sanctions team and sometimes sanctions will sit under the regulatory team as well so all of this starts separating then what we find in the last the last five years was this doesn't work you know we've we've segregated we've siloed we've diverged and we we also saw some banks separating financial risk from non-financial risk so you had compliance and op risk on one side and then credit risk and market risk on the other as much and going what I said earlier as well, it's you know there are documents within credit 
from clients that you're going to need for KYC purposes, but never shall the two departments speak to each other. And they become very siloed and very protective of their own areas. So ultimately, what we've began to see is people waking up and realizing the way that we manage risk doesn't work. So yes, it started with compliance within legal, within accounting, they completely separated out, <clears throat> then they segregated the departments, the whole risk, the risk departments became fragmented. And now we're beginning to see a lot more going under this, the chief risk officer. Now, there is a cautionary tale. We have seen chief risk officers, Credit Suisse was a good example, where, where, chief, where um, credit risk officers have fundamentally failed because it's such a broad scope of responsibilities and you cannot keep your finger on the pulse of everything that's happening. So I think it was a CRO at credit risk that was blamed a couple of years ago for the fallout um, um, of one of their div portfolio diversifications. And this should have been understood. So one, one person cannot be held responsible for the failure of an organization. That's, that's a very fair statement. And that's something I still stand over. But secondly, how we manage risk needs to change. And I, we've talked about automation, <clears throat> but we also need to look again at why we've created risk controls, what those controls are fundamentally looking to achieve, and also how we can create economies of scale, i.e. where we have duplication in processes, where we have duplication in documentation requirements, uh, especially at the customer side, what can we do to fix that? One of the other things that I have a real issue with at the moment, and I know this is completely separate discussion, is we have done so much work to automate the front end, the user experience at the front end. So it looks like we're like a lot of the traditional banks, it looks like we're beginning to move into the digital age. But at the back end, it's still the same old processes. It's still manual. It's still very working on 70s era programming languages at some banks. Yeah. Correct. Very senior, so, uh, very senior programmers so, still working for them. So whilst we're trying to, whilst, you know, in traditional banking in particular, whilst we're trying to improve the front end, the customer experience, the digitalization on that side, what have we done on the other side to improve the second line controls, the operational controls within the organizations? That is where it's going to hit. You can look aesthetically as digital as you want, but if your back end processes are still manual, you're, you know, you're going to be dead in the water. Um, so this, this is something that fundamentally needs to change within the industry as well. Organizations need to get smarter. They need to work, not work hard, but work smart. And in many organizations, I think we just need to go back and rip up the rule book and say, what are we trying to do here? What, what is it we're trying to achieve? And look at all of the enforcement actions and, every, you know, audit reports look at all of the findings, regulatory inspections, and understand how flawed the control framework is and how we can better improve it to move into a digital age. Yeah, I mean, to pick up on what you're saying, I mean, so ultimately what will lawyers and compliance officers in the financial world and, you know, the corporate sphere, need MNCs need to know about fintech and regtech is most of them are not techies. Most of them don't come from STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, uh, you know, they, or math. They they don't come from those fields. They they're not necessarily all that tech savvy. But tech is having an impact on what they do. So, is this just going to be a matter of 
hire reg tech people to oversee that tech, and now they're part of our compliance teams. I think the danger we have here is we're hiring people in to advise people who don't know, who don't understand the how the automation and the the, the how that should look. And I think that's another thing that we need to look at carefully as well. When something goes wrong, we we very quickly rely on external consultants. And I and I say this, you know, I, I know I work as a consultant. I work as a consultant because I love I love the diversification. I love the variety of the work. But um, one of the things that we do badly as an industry is we hire in consultants when something goes wrong to fix the problem. But when they leave the building, they take the knowledge and experience with them. They don't train people internally. We don't put people with them to shadow them so that they can learn. So, you know, when, you know, if we want to look at automation, it's not a matter of just hiring in a consultant to say, okay, well, tell me, tell me how we can fix this. Okay, great. It's actually about, we're going to have to employ people into the organization and we're going to have to educate the team. We're going to have to educate management because that individual who's brought in, they're not a, they're not a magic pill. You know, it's not, it's not like a matrix blue pill or red, you know, blue pill or red pill. You take one and we're going to fix the problem. We're going to have to educate the team yeah. so that the team can be part of the solution because only then will you be able to get, so the people on the team that have developed the controls need to, need to be, you know, how can I put this? When we go into organizations and we want to remediate, the worst thing that you can do is just suddenly say, this is wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, and fix it all. You first need to understand why have we built it this way? Why was there the need to, something that looks completely illogical, why did we do this? There will be a reason. Challenges sometimes people who actually did it, the reason may have left the building with them because it hasn't been documented. So, but we need people to be educated by the new person coming in so that they can be part of the solution and be part of helping to carve what that next evolution and design of the framework looks like. So I'm really, really passionate about growing teams and developing teams by bringing people in as permanent team members, helping to educate the team in what they're doing so the team can be part of the solution. Um, and that's the only way that we're going to be able to make fundamental change. Otherwise, it's going to be a temporary stopgap as always. And then we're going to start, we're going to do remediation this year. And then two years, three years later, we'll do it again. And then we'll do it again and again. And that's unfortunately what organizations have ended up doing at the moment. Recurring theme from what I recall, um, just based on what you've seen with your clients, and I, I mean, I know there are things you can't divulge, but what are the critical issues in the world of regulatory compliance that you're seeing in the financial sector uh, that, that need resolving that, that, that aren't being resolved or, or um, might benefit from a different perspective? I, I think that one of the simple things that I've mentioned is not so much regulation, it's a ownership of risk. Um, yeah. I think I've mentioned this earlier as well. You know, we, we, we need to empower the business to acknowledge that the risk is theirs. When we see enforcement actions happening, we all, and this is another thing as well across the industry. You never see the the, the big guys being held accountable, <laughs> the senior oh. people being held accountable. It's always some some you know low ranking person um, on the scale that's made a scapegoat for the failures of an organization, and and that's something as well that has to fundamentally. We need to see more enforcement action of senior executives. 
Um, positive steps have been taken by various regulators of the past number of the UK actually has always had a very good um, kind of framework in place for controlled functions, which should have pushed through enforcement action against senior executives. It hasn't been used as well as it could have been. Singapore has also implemented managers. Uh, correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And it was all, but to be fair, whenever they introduced a new regime in the UK a couple of years ago, it wasn't a new regime. That regime has been around for many, many years. The controlled functions regimes. Uh, yeah. Under under common law that that exists. Correct. Yeah, yeah, it was always there. But, you know, in Singapore, we we didn't see it um, so much, except for very, you know, for, for CEO and senior management. Australia has implemented it. What we need to start seeing now is more enforcement action in this regard of people who are in privileged positions being held accountable for regulatory failures. Um, and that, you know, money, money does not, fines do not hurt. They do not hurt organizations. Most organizations have a little, have a little, uh, you know, uh, how can I say, they funneled off a little bit of money in the anticipation of an enforcement action because it's going, it's just a matter of doing business. No financial institution is zero risk. Not, no, no financial institution does not have risk because risk, your risk is managed within your appetite enforcement action will happen you know it's it's a we are in a risk business so you know we're going to see enforcement action what happens well if there's no enforcement action that little you know funneled monies go back into the end of year profits it's a win-win nobody got a fine and we get better bonuses and yay it's all good and if there is a fine oh well we anticipated that and we'd already written it off so you know we anticipated that that would be the case no provisions for it Correct, because provisions have been made. But when we see individual accountability and enforcement action, that's when people really begin to open our eyes and say, hey, wait a second. You know, I could be held personally accountable for these failures. That's what that's more. We need to see more of that happening. And I really want to see these senior manager regimes, accountability regimes really beginning to come into their fruition. But again, it's all politics, whether or not, whether or not we're going to see, we're, we're going to see that happening or not will depend on whether we're just giving, where we're trying to give the appearance of this working or whether it actually is going to work. It occurs to me though, that reputational damage is not something they care about. Fines are regarded as just another cost of doing business. And right. to play devil's advocate about how we've only seen lower level under underlings you know, taking the task and, and paying the price. In criminal law, you've got to prove causation. And when there are multiple layers in an organization, the, the, the folks on top have plausible deniability because in this day and age, a lot of people are smart enough not to say things over the phone, not to put things in an email or in a correspondence. You know, that, that instructions are given, but when the smoke clears, the preponderance of the evidence shows that the underling was guilty, hence they pay the price. That, that is one thing that I learned very early in my career um, is when, and, I, and, I, and I'm not saying that people should do this, but one of the things that I do um, is every time I have a meeting or a discussion, I formalize it in an email and I send the email. So very when a decision wise. is... When a decision is made um, within any organization, even, even a small decision, I will send an email to confirm 
what the discussion was and what the decision was. Now, I've had people come to me and say, I don't understand why you would feel the need to send that email. We had a discussion and I said, oh, I just sent it just to make sure we're all on the same page and that I didn't miss anything, you know, before. And they're like, well, we, there was no need to put that in writing. Actually, there was a need because when it comes full circle around and something goes, well, I'm going to need that email to show that this decision was made. And that is something that I've actually been able to use in my career as well to say, hey, wait a second, this, these decisions were, this was a decision that was made here or there. And um, it's a horrible way to have to work, but unfortunately you need to have that level of protection in any organization. You need to document decision-making and document why decisions have been made. Um, and I'm not saying that you should keep a depository of like all decision-making, but it's important that you have that because you'll be surprised, you know, even down the line where somebody says, actually, I don't agree with that. Who did this? This was a really stupid idea. You can go back and say, actually, well, this decision was made on the, on this date and this is who was involved in that decision. These things always come around. And even in regulatory inspections or audits, they can always come back again. So it's important. It's actually a, it's, 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 it's a, it could be a very damaging psychological state to be in if that's how you had to work 24 <laughs> seven. But um, there are, there are times where if things haven't been formalized in decision-making, do document it. I, that's one thing that I would say to anybody within any profession, make sure you have that evidence. Yeah, it's it's, it's a cruel reality, but uh, I mean, one does have to almost engage in such preemptive uh, defensive tactics because of what, um, what might ensue down the road. Um, Coming back to your, your philosophy about uh, taking a more holistic approach to compliance, because it seems to me that the generational divide that exists in this profession, and certainly more of the older generation are leaving the profession with each passing year, but there was for the longest time a view that people are, compliance is essentially backward looking because you're trying to find out what the act of malfeasance was and hopefully investigate and punish the wrongdoers. Risk management is forward-looking. That yeah. in the aftermath of 2001, Enron, Sarbanes-Oxley, more to the point 2008, people were trying to use compliance to do risk management. That, that's one generation. Younger generations seem to have the view that, again, the three tangled threads of risk, governance, and compliance, they're entangled, they impact on each other, they're not the same thing, but they all need to be taken into account in tandem. And their view is it's all the same. Good risk, good, good risk management is good compliance, is good governance, and that in one case, a lawyer told me that for an Australian bank, before she devises a compliance program for, say, their Hanoi branch, she looks at what the risks are in that particular locale, that milieu, and then devises the compliance program. So that is to say, her assessment of the risk informs her, informs how she devises the compliance program. Yeah. So what, what, what are your thoughts then? So that. Compliance, therefore, can't necessarily be fully divorced from the other threads, the, the other triplets, shall we say, r risk and um, governance. 
For me, gee, governance, risk, and compliance is 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 all is all one in the same. It's it's the power of three. It's the tri- it's the it's the triangle. Yeah, without being funny. cheesy, it is a triangle. Um, governance dictates the risk appetite and the compliance mindset of an organization. First and foremost, governance is what defines how you view your risk and how you will how com- what, what the importance of compliance is to you, what that means for you as an organization. So, so governance is your mindset. Um, it is your determination of your appetite for risk. And that then funnels through everything else. So, you know, governance will dictate kind of top, your, yeah, correct, yeah, correct. So, so governance, governance basically is the top um, of the, of the, the triangle. Um, and then, you know, next is your, is your risk appetite. Well, the whole thing is, is, is built upon your risk appetite. Compliance is kind of like the middle section where you're, you're creating a framework to support what the appetite of governance is for risk. Um, so it's, it's, it's all, it's, it's all one in the same. It should never be viewed as segregated or siloed from one another. It, it all should be, it, it should be all as holistically together. Um, and that's one thing is I find really interesting recently with a lot of the regulatory approvals that I've been working on, um, is that, you know, let's say for example, crypto regulation, um, going through the, the FCA AML regime, it wasn't an AML regime that they, the regulators were looking at. They were, of course, they were looking whether you have the applicable policies and procedures in place. Anybody could create those. Like that, it's, it's not, as again, not rocket science. It's a tick the box exercise. What they're looking at is how has this been deployed and how is it operationally effective within the governance structure and the risk control framework of your organization? And that is that is the fundamental differentiator that we're seeing nowadays. We're not looking for a tick box approach to policies and procedures. We're looking for an approach where we can see that the mindset of management has been absorbed by the organization and that the risk appetite is understood. So when regulators interview people, they're not asking, oh, you know, well, what about page six of your AML policy where it says X, Y, and Z? They're, they're actually asking really good questions around mindset, around culture, Um, again, you know, so you have a transaction monitoring system. Yes. Okay, great. So which provider are you using? Well, X, Y, Z. Okay, that's great. How have you calibrated the system in respect of the risks in your book? So how have you identified the risks and what do you understand about your risks? You're not going to have that answer from a policy or procedure. You're going to have to be able to articulate, okay, I chose this provider having undertaken an assessment of risk based on the products and services that we offer. And when implementing the system, we've calibrated it to identify risk based on the following the following typologies. And that is the answers the regulators are looking for. So there's nowhere to hide anymore. Policies, procedures, frameworks, they don't exist anymore. Yeah. So the time we've got left, because we are affiliated with the university, um, any pearls of wisdom you have for any of our undergrad or graduate school students seeking a who might want to seek might want to seek compliance as a career path um the one thing i would say is you will never you will never have a dull moment working in compliance not every not every day is easy uh, i'll be honest about that the, the highs are highs the lows can be lows 
but you will never have a role or a job that will challenge you as much as working in compliance does. You will learn a lot about yourself. You will learn a lot of it, it, it. Compliance has a lot to do. We didn't mention a lot of it today, but psychology plays a massive role in being a good compliance officer. Emotional intelligence. You need to have a very high EQ to work in, to, to do a good job in compliance. And if that's something where you feel that you might need to grow and develop, there's many books out there that you can read, that you can study. I'm happy to provide you actually, AJ, afterwards with a list of, of books and materials that yeah. I constantly go back to. Um, okay. So emotional intelligence is critical of critical importance. You're going to have to convey a message to 10 different people in 10 different ways and make them believe in that message and empower them to own that message. And that is something which I wouldn't say requires manipulation of mindsets or psychological change, but it requires you to approach it in different ways because 10 people will think in 10 different ways. Um, and so it's important that you, yeah. So I think emotional intelligence is key. Um, an understanding of psychology and behavior is very, very important. But if you want a job that challenges you, a job that you'll never be bored in, I would highly recommend compliance to, to everybody in the room. And just remember that compliance is not about academic success. You don't need to walk in there having been an A grade student your entire your entire academic um, part of your education. Compliance is about practical thinking. It's about being smart. Um, it's about thinking outside the box. Um, and to an extent, at times, I always I always say this. Um making changes to any compliance process is like a game of chess. You have to think two steps ahead. You have to constantly think of the knock-on effect. And sometimes working in compliance, you can you can feel, I say this and I hope I don't say it in the wrong way, but you can feel a little bit schizophrenic at times because you're constantly second guessing what you're doing because you're like, okay, if I do this, what is going to be the effect of this? And you constantly have to challenge yourself on decisions that are being made because you have to think about the knock-on consequences. You know, what if I make this change, what could be the effect to another policy or another procedure or another risk control? Not immediately, but as a knock-on effect. What, yeah, what is so, yeah. Correct. So those are things. If that, if you like that type of, you know, if, if it's it's like playing a video game at times. If you like that and that challenges you and excites you. Compliance is definitely for you. It's often been said you want someone uh, who's a little paranoid in, in, in this line of work. And, and, and to your point about your point about communicating with ten different people the same message in ten different ways, that really resonates because I think that, that goes to the heart of being a good manager in terms of managing people's personalities to the point where they operate at their best. That they're giving you their fullest, and you get you know, the most out of them. So uh, you heard it here for first. So Una, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, AJ. And thank you to Pross as well. I really, really appreciate the time. Again, you're a very good friend, um, which I, who I love dearly. Um, but also it's been such an enjoyable conversation today. Likewise. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. Please come again next time.